The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, welcome tonight. It's good to see all of you. Time for us to, uh, to begin, continue our study in Romans 6. Let's open with, uh, with prayer and we'll dig in. Father, we thank you for the gifts that you give us that are so far beyond anything that we deserve. You have dealt with us in kindness and mercy. Uh, you have not treated us as our sins deserve, but rather have been so generous and kind to forgive us all of our sins and to give us the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit and to give us a perfect scripture which tells us everything that we need for life and godliness. So I pray that by the indwelling Spirit and by uh, your guidance tonight that we will be able to study this beautiful chapter, Romans 6, and be able to understand what it teaches us about personal holiness. I pray that you would guide me, uh, guard me from error and from anything that would be, um, be harmful or not helpful or not true and uh, all of us as we think together uh, about what it means to grow in sanctification. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you've got your handout. We're going to be moving through, continuing to make progress in Romans uh, 6, a fantastic uh, chapter, uh, which teaches the topic of progressive sanctification or growth and holiness. Now, last week I looked at, our, at the mark that I made. We were about at verse 11. Uh, Romans 6, uh, 11 uh, through 14, but I wouldn't mind somebody reading Romans 6, 1 through 10. Just get a running start, and then we'll pick it up at verse 11. Could someone read Romans 6, 1 through 10 for us? All right, thank you. So this is dealing with the, uh, the topic of the relationship uh, between a justified person, a Christian, born again, uh, whose sins are forgiven, um, and the ongoing issue of sin. Shall we go on sinning that may, uh, grace may increase? By no means. And so then he gives us the, uh, the, the doctrine of our spiritual union with Christ. Uh, the moment we come to faith in Christ, we have be, uh, become spiritually one with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. Union with Jesus in his death brings us to the negative aspect of sanctification, what we call mortification or putting sin to death, to not doing certain things. And then unification with Christ in his life points to the positive aspect of sanctification, uh, fruitfulness, uh, fruit of the Spirit, a conformity to, to the character and the life of Christ. So that's the, the concept here. Uh, Paul has to teach us all these things because these are not things that we can know in the five-sense world. We don't discern them by our five senses. We have to believe them. We have to understand them by faith, by doctrine, and know that they're uh, true. And so... He said, I, I want all of you to know that when you uh, became a Christian, you were baptized into Christ Jesus' death and also um, in his resurrection. And so we should live a new life or walk in newness of life, verse 1 through 4. And as a result then, since we have been united with him in his death, we will be united in his resurrection. It's not just negative, but positive. Uh, we died to sin. Um, verse 6 is a key verse that we worked on last week. Our old self who we were in Adam as uh, lost people, our position before God died the moment we came to Christ. That old man died. It's not is dying. It's not getting weaker or any of that. Not at all. Just positionally died. The person we were in Adam died. And now we are in Christ. Um, and if that's true, then we know also that the body of sin might be rendered increasingly powerless. 6.6 6 teaches that. Uh, this is where we have that concept of death by, uh, death by starvation. All of our sin patterns can be gradually rendered increasingly powerless. They can be, to some degree, starved to death, 6.6. 6. Um, and then, as a result of that, we wouldn't live like we are slaves to sin. This is all review from last week. Then verse 7, anyone who has died has been freed from sin. There is a decisive break that has been made between us and sin. So sin has no authority, no power over us. We died to sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we know we'll also live with him. Negative, positive. We died to sin, we live with Christ. And so death has no mastery whatsoever. So 
What that means is that we have, death has no authority or, or power over us and we can walk in newness of life. Now the new verses today. Verses 11 four, uh, through 14. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness, for sin shall not be your master because you're not under law but under grace. So, as we've noted a number of times before, in verse 11, Paul gives the first command of the entire book of Romans. Consider yourself or reckon yourself or think of yourself as dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean to you? What does it mean to think of yourself as dead to sin? I like that word reckon. Okay. I always have to add an accent to it. I reckon as in I'm or I count. So like a Western, like an old Western. I reckon so. Something but, like but that. that. But that's also a no. like adding term. Like, well, okay. I reckon three of your cows. And, you know. So it's like an accounting kind of thing. Okay, how do we do this practically? How do we consider or think or reckon ourselves dead to sin? How do we, how do, we do this? I think of Galatians 2.20. Mm -hmm. Things like Paul does. Mm -hmm. I am crucified with Christ. So, so maybe as you mm -hmm. start your day, I'm crucified with Christ. And yet I live. Okay. So I think it's helpful to think of it uh, sin in general. Uh, I'm dead to sin, period. And then sins in particular. We don't all struggle with the same things. But there are specific areas that we would call besetting sins or areas of weakness that just cause us trouble again and again. So how would verse 11 help us in those areas? Let's imagine somebody has an anger problem, anger management problem, all right? They just again and again overreact in certain situations. How are they supposed to live out verse 11, this command in that area? You feel it welling up within you. you tell yourself you don't have to give in to it. Okay, so it's something you would say to yourself. You would talk to yourself, okay? Anyone? That's good. Anyone else? Talking to yourself. Say, I am, I'm dead to that sin. Okay? Anyone else? The idea of considering yourself dead to a specific sin, such as carnal anger. Reminds me of the verse, not slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. You don't have to obey that master or that Okay. Yeah, I think a large part of the deception of sin and Satan's deception in sin is to completely contradict this thing. If you are habitually sinning in an area, it owns you. You're never going to be able to defeat it. There's a defeatist kind of attitude here that comes over you in a certain way. Uh, you've made a certain efforts in this area, but they never work out, and so you just kind of want to give up. All roads uh, in Satan's temptation strategy tends toward us giving up and giving in. So we don't fight because he knows if we put on the spiritual armor and if we make a stand as Christians, we're going to be successful. We're going to see sin mortified. We're going to see it weakened. So you, it starts with this conception. I'm dead to sin in general, to all sins, but specifically to that sin. Greg, go ahead. And we've got some experience with that already in the sense that there are, uh, if we're in Christ, particularly if we've been in Christ for a while, there are things in our life that we used to be very alive to and we're already practically dead to. It's like, I have no... I can't even imagine going back there. I have no interest in that. I'm dead to that. So uh, adopt the same attitude towards the things you're struggling with. Yeah. And this is just in general the truth in the Christian uh, sanctification, et cetera, uh, this how we are. God, God declares what we are and then tells us to live up to it. You know, and, and so we actually can make a declaration out ahead of the certain behavior patterns. I'm dead to the, that sin. Now I'm going to live like I'm dead to it. And the way you do that is by putting specific temptations in that, in that category to death. Now, here's the thing that we learn. Temptations can be killed, but sin itself can't be killed. By that I mean uh, the, the sin of carnal anger 
you'll never be able to say in this life, that is permanently behind me. I know I'll never sin in that area again. You have to be vigilant. You have to keep watching in certain areas, specifically areas you've sinned in before. You have to give special attention to those. But they can get weaker. You can weaken them. That's what 6.6 is telling us, Romans 6.6. So the sin can be rendered increasingly powerless. Um, but the, uh, the category of sin cannot be killed. All right. However, individual moments of temptation can and should be successfully killed. That's what we're saying. So that particular moment that comes, and in the past you've flown off the handle, you've gotten angry, whatever, you don't have to do that this time. You can say to yourself, I'm dead to that. I'm, I'm supposed to consider myself dead. I would also commend it in your uh, quiet times as you are having time in the Lord. So much of this is preparation before the day even happens, right? Before you even in that circumstance, you get ready. Just like any commanding general who sees an army coming, he gets, he gets the battle lines ready. He gets his troops ready. They're trained. He digs ditches and puts up sandbags or whatever you need to do to get ready for the battle. You need to get ready ahead of time. You can't be caught unawares. I never saw it coming. It's like, how could you not see it coming? You knew, you knew that these things were happening. You've got to think about your day. And I think it's right for you to look ahead at your day and say, what are, what are some temptations that are likely to come on me today? What are some besetting sins, you know? Imagine you had a, a, an office, a co-worker, a suite mate, and this person is just irritating to you, all right? Just the way that their work habits, whatever. And, and you want to be a good witness, but they, they tend to rub you the wrong way. Get ready ahead of time for those interactions. Might be a boss, a supervisor, somebody like that as a personality just rubs you the wrong way. How do you get ready for it? So that's what I think 6.11 says, you're, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So it's just not just negative, but positive. I'm not just going to not display carnal anger. Instead, I want to display the fruit of the Spirit. I want to actually be positively Christ-like in this area. I want to be peaceful and loving toward the person. I want to exhibit patience in, in certain areas. So it's not just negative. It's I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. All right, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. All right. So you're not going to allow sin to have dominion over you. Um, and in here again, we have this. We have a number of terms for the body. There's its body of sin in one place. Uh, here it's called the mortal body. All right, what does that mean, the mortal body? What is the mortal body? It's temporary. Flesh. Flesh. It's going to die. Mortal means it's going to die. It's heading for the grave. Let's be honest, all right? We're all getting older, all right? <laughs> You know, um, and, and so that's what we're talking about. This body is heading for the grave. It is corruptible. It is the seat of the problem. And, but it is our only vehicle of serving God in this world. We need the body, but it's got problems, and it's wired for sin. It's geared for sin. There are drives and appetites and desires that are in and of themselves good and right and given by God, but sin pushes them beyond boundaries so that we become excessive in those areas. That's what the mortal body does. I'm not going to let sin reign in my mortal body so that I obey its lusts, uh, its temptations. The, the, uh, James tells us all sin begins with a desire. It starts with desires. You have to manage your desires. I'm not going to give in to its evil desires. All right, and then he says, do not offer or present the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you're not under law but under grace. So now we have this idea of offering or presenting of the members. Go ahead, Greg. Uh, and this thought of considering yourself dead, making yourself dead, uh, Andy's been going through similar stuff with the, in the BFL class. It, it's been tremendously stimulating, and I, I've, it's, I've realized more and more that there are some sins that uh, I think I'm serious about killing it, but I'm not sure I really am. And I, and what's what I've been preaching, saying to myself with actually quite a bit of encouragement and, and 
and kind of zealously preaching to myself, okay, I've got to go DEFCON 5 on this thing. I've got to, I've got to roll out the nuclear option and kill it, you know, and I've been preaching to myself. So what does that what does that mean the DEFCON thing or whatever? What is what are the options? I can't play with I can't play around with this thing. I can't I can't I can't play with uh, things that aren't really going to kill it. I need to I need to find those things that are going to kill the thing. Okay. Yeah. Take it seriously. Huh? You got to take it seriously. Yeah, you got to fight it. I'm trying to say to myself and, and I'll, I'll myself. So. Okay. Not talking suicide here, are you? All right, all right. Okay, good. So, Defcon. Got to keep living in the body, but fighting its lust. All right, very, very good. <laughs> oh, don't do that. <laughs> yes. Since you brought it up, I don't think physically cutting off any part of the body will help with sin. Just uh, we we know that Jesus does use that language, but clearly the sin is not seated in your right hand or your right eye. Um, but at any rate, yeah, you're you're to kill the temptations and and lusts. And you're not to, not to present or offer the parts of your body to sin to obey its lust. Now, first we need to talk about what the parts of the body are. What does he mean? All right. Verse 13, do not offer or present the parts of your body as instruments of wickedness. What does he mean by that? The parts of the body. Okay, the tongue. All right. So don't offer the tongue to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Is the tongue ever an instrument of wickedness? Yeah, James says it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. All right. Um, so do not offer your tongue. All right. What, are, what are, are other parts of the body that we're talking about here? What do we even mean by the parts of the body? All of eyes, hands, feet. Okay, so the members, such as eyes, hands, all right. But I think also your internal, your mind, for example. You're, you know, you're not going to... Absolutely. Absolutely. So we are to control our thought life. I mean, it's very easy to prove in many verses of Scripture, the whole thing starts there. It starts with a battle for the mind. So you're going to control your thought life. Are you able to do that? How do we control what we think about? You know, Paul says in Philippians, whatever's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Think about those things. Do you get the sense there Paul means think only about those things? I think so. Only what's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent. So how do you do that? How do you do mind control on yourself? How do you control your thought life? Well, one of the things that Galatians tells us, uh, do not be deceived, whatever you sow, you will also reap. So part of that process is making sure you're Pouring into your mind. Okay. That things that are going to produce good fruit. So, yeah, storing, you know, it says, out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. You're talking about the mouth, right? The tongue. You're going to talk about what you've stored up in your mind, what you're immersing your mind in. That's what you're going to talk about. So then it talks, then I think we're talking about the practical discipline of Bible intake, right? That's the purpose of the quiet time. I think it's also the value of memorization of Scripture because it's just hard work and you're going to have to go over it again and again and again. And if you're just doing the mechanical work of memorization, you're going to be thinking about that and not about evil. All right. Now, here's the question I have. How do how does Satan and demons fit into this battle for the mind? What kind of powers do they have, demons and Satan, concerning thoughts? Okay, so that he says that kind of stuff. But is he on the outside of your brain knocking to get in, or is he already in there? I'm not saying are you demon-possessed. That's a different matter. <laughs> does, does Satan have the power to insinuate thoughts into the human mind? It's pretty obvious that he does. Here's biblical proof in a, in a strange sort of way. Um, but um, uh, Joseph was warned by an angel of the Lord in a dream concerning Herod that he was going to try to kill the, kill the baby, and so he had to get up in the middle of the night. How did the angel give Joseph a dream? Well, that's interesting. 
So the angel is able to put a dream in Joseph's mind while he slept and communicate with him what he needed to do concerning Mary and the baby Jesus, right? Well, uh, demons are fallen angels. What does that tell you about demons? They have the, abil the ability to insinuate things in your mind. They do not have the ability to make you choose to do anything. So there is a difference between a thought temptation and a thought sin. It's a very important distinction. Well, how would you make a distinction between a thought temptation and a thought sin? You act on it. It's a thought sin. All right, it's still a thought, though, so it's not an action yet, but not, I, can you act mentally on something? Yeah. You, you buy in. Yeah. Exactly. Right, so the thought comes in, but the question is, do you dally with it? Do you entertain it? Do you develop it? Positively speaking, there is a discipline called meditation on Scripture. Like, what's the difference between reading Scripture and meditating on Scripture? How would you make a distinction between the two? You preached on that the first Sunday. It's, it's like ruminating. It's, it's thinking over it again and again, and not just passing over it. So you're, you're feeding the fire of the thoughts that are coming from that Bible verse, right? That's meditation. You're developing it. You're, you're turning it over in your mind. You're pondering it. Can you do all that evil? Yes. Yes, you can. And so you're dallying with it. You're expanding it. You're developing the thought. Those are thought sins. So Satan, I do believe, has the power to insinuate thought temptations, but he can't make you pull the trigger on them. Neither can he make you act on them. If you are acting, either mentally or physically, it's your fault. It's not Satan's fault. It's not the Spirit's fault. It's your fault. You have to take ownership. So you have to control what you ponder. But be aware that there's just going to be flaming arrows coming from Satan all the time. Mental, mental battles. All right? So that's, uh, it starts with the battle for the mind. So the parts of the body start with the mind and the heart, the affections, the emotions. Do we have any control over our emotions? All right. What do you mean? So how do we have control over our emotions? Can you imagine somebody saying, I can't help it, it's just how I feel? Yeah, I can imagine somebody saying that. <laughs> yeah, whether it's true or not, do people think that way and talk like that? They do. It's like, well, do you have any control over how you feel? You actually do. All right. Uh, one of the more interesting studies I did when I was writing Infinite Journey was uh, a meditation on disordered emotions in the Bible. Messed up emotions. People feeling things or being emotional in ways they shouldn't. All right? Very good example. Mary Magdalene looking at the empty tomb. You remember that? She's looking in at the physical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. And what is she doing? What's her emotional state as she's looking at the empty tomb? No, she's weeping. And the angel said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And then Jesus shows up, John 20. And what does he say? The exact same thing the angel did. Woman, why are you weeping? Right? What's the implication of the angel's question and Jesus's question to Mary Magdalene? Her emotions are wrong. Should she be weeping at that moment? Does Jesus think it's a weeping day? Is today a weeping day? No, of all the women in redemptive history, you have been chosen to stand and look at the physical evidence of the empty tomb, and not only that, but to have an actual encounter with the resurrected Jesus. I would suggest that you should be happy today. This is the happiest day in redemptive history, and you get to be an eyewitness. So you need to change your emotions. That's one example. Yeah, go ahead. A messed up emotion. That was a redirected emotion. She she actually had the appropriate emotion for the amount of information she had, right? Wrong. Did Jesus not tell them again and again and again and again what was going to happen? Did he not say he would be killed and on the third day rise again? And let's not, all right, if we want to protect Mary, because we love Mary and all that, then what about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Remember them? 
Did they have messed up emotions? Sure, they did. Mary's fine, but they had messed up emotions. All right, fine, let's not do Mary. Let's do them. We had hoped that he was going to be the one. What did Jesus say to them? How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer and enter into his glory? So they should have known even apart from what Jesus specifically told them was going to happen. The prophets said that he would rise from the dead. And so he felt that two disciples on the road to Emmaus had disordered affections. And by the time he got done with them, even though they didn't know who they were talking to, their hearts were burning within them and they were happy. Or then we'll just take the simple repeated command in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. So we are apparently able to control our emotions. So anyway, just going back to the verse, we are to present the different functions of ourselves to God, not to sin. All right. We are to present the members of our body, our minds, our emotions, our hearts, our wills, and our muscles, our, our feet, our hands, our eyes, every part. Present them to God, not to sin. Now, this presentation, he says, we are to present the members of our body as uh, instruments, um, uh, also that could be translated weapons. So as a tool to do work, or as a weapon to fight a battle, either way, you are designed to be that, right? So use the parts of your body as tools slash weapons for the kingdom of God, not for sin. That's what he's saying. Use them for the kingdom of God. Um, so present your bodies. And so it, it, effectively what he's saying is, Concerning every part of your body, you're saying to God, I am yours to use. I want you to use me. I want you to use my tongue. I don't want to be silent. I'm not taking a vow of silence. I want my, my tongue to be filled with good words. I want to say good things. I want to speak right doctrine. I want to give hope to my brothers and sisters. I want to speak the gospel to lost people. I want to pray prayers, intercessory. I want to use my tongue well. So I'm going to use, I'm going to present the member of my, members of my body to God as an instrument or a weapon. I'm yours to command. Now, uh, the exact same Greek word is used in Matthew 26, 53. Jesus said to Peter, remember Peter? Remember Peter had drawn his, his, uh, his little uh, fisherman dagger thing that he used to car carve up fish? And he's going to take on 600 Roman legion, legions, uh, soldiers, right? He's going to fight them. Peter versus the soldiers. Remember that? Uh, so he, and Jesus told them, what, what should he do with his sword? Put it away, all right? Because all who draw the sword will die by the sword. So that's just a clear warning to Peter. If you continue in this way, you'll be dead within seconds, all right? Just immediately. Why? They'll kill you. So all who draw the sword will die by the sword. But then he goes to the, the heart of the matter. Peter's just constantly fighting this idea of Jesus dying on the cross. He just can't accept it. It's just hard for him to accept it. He doesn't understand it. What's going on? And then Jesus says, if I'm trying to avoid the cross, do you think I could not call on my father? And he would at once, here's the same Greek word, put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. So the, the, the point has to do with the demeanor or attitude of the angels if they were dispatched from heaven to Jesus. What does Jesus mean by put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How would they be at his disposal? And what would they do? Whatever he told them to do. If he said kill those 600 Romans, what would they do? It would be over in seconds, less. All right, it would not be difficult. The angels obey immediately. Just like the Lord's Prayer, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is it done in heaven? Perfectly, immediately, promptly. That's how angels are. All right, what does that teach you about the verse then? You are to present yourself like the angels would. You are to present the members of your body in the same way. Everything I am is yours to command and to use. So it's not a neutral life. We're not talking we're not going to sin. It's we are going to serve. We are going to fight for the glory of God. We are, we've got things to do. We're going to be active. We are walking in newness of life in the pattern of Christ's resurrection. We are not using our bodies and our tongues and our minds and all that for sin.
That's what he's saying, presenting. And, and again, later in Romans 12, 2, he'll say, you are to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Same doctrine, all right? Poetical example is in the hymn, famous hymn from Francis Ridley Havergal, Take My Life and Let It Be. The hymn writer um, goes through basically an inventory, like stanza, six stanzas of inventory. Take this, take that, take the other, right? You remember the hymn. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing, always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. It's just an inventory, all right? So how could we do this again as we're getting ready for our day? Let's say in a quiet time. How would such an inventory be helpful for us? Pray about these different things and ask the Lord to help you. Okay. You could focus on your own body because he is talking about the mortal body. Lord, my eyes, help me to only look at what's good and right and, and pure. Help me not to look at anything wicked or evil, all right? Uh, whether on my smartphone, internet, or just in physical life. I, I don't want to covet. I don't, you know, the eye is the lamp of the body. My eyes need to be good. I need to be filled with light. So uh, same thing with my ears. Help me only listen uh, to those things that will build me up. Help me to speak. The tongue is, you know, like James says, if you can control the tongue, you control the whole body. So I'd like God just to get to lunch, not having violated my conscience with my tongue. I don't want to say anything. Do you know how many different categories of verbal sins there are? I mean, think of all the different ways you can sin with your tongue, categorically, right? You can lie, right? You can gossip or slander. You can speak false doctrine. You can complain, all right? Let's take that one for a moment, all right? I won't ask any of you to fess up, but have you... Do you think there's any possibility you might have used your tongue to complain today? All right? Why is that a sin? Why is complaining a sin? What's wrong with complaining? It's the opposite of contentment. Say again. Opposite of contentment. It's opposite of contentment. Okay. We should be thanking God. We should be speaking, giving, giving. If something's difficult for us, fine. But just pray, pray a psalm that's appropriate. We don't have to act like things aren't hard or painful. But, you know, fundamentally, complaining is a great sin. You know, so complaining. Um, there are many different sins we can, we can commit with our, our mouths. So I just, I want to use my tongue today for the glory of God. And then you could go through uh, segments of your day, time-wise. You know, take my time at work. You know, the time that I'm, I have to go out and do some errands. Take that time, my drive time. How can I use that for your glory? You're presenting different functions to God. Greg, were you going to say something, brother? I was just going to say, uh, you could pray through uh, the tail end of Ephesians mm -hmm. 4, too. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. So that and it goes on. But So one of the criteria is uh, complaining. Mm -hmm. Who am I building up by complaining? Yeah, so amen. I mean, that's a great, what I call, I would call a mouth filter, yeah. right? Filter uh, takes things out, yeah. like a whole house water filter, right? I'll never forget when I put that, that in my house. I bought the house without a water filter, all right? And soon in, you know, we are, we're on a pump, uh, a well. And uh, I'll never forget, I put in this water filter. And uh, I'll tell you what, cutting that copper pipe with the pipe cutter I bought at Lowe's was one of the most courageous acts I'd ever uh, done as a homeowner. Because I like, once I cut that thing, we're in, we're in it now. All right, we got to get this thing in or we're in trouble. But then once I got that whole house water filter, the cartridge went in pure white. And within a short time, it wasn't white anymore. And I realized we'd been drinking that all that time. Now, I think it was all kind of organic and natural. It was a lot of reddish, red North Carolina clay. Um, but that's what it was, you know, it's, that's what a filter is. But if you go back to the verse that you said, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is dot, dot, dot. That's a filter, right? I'm not going to say anything to another person that will not benefit them, will not build them up. Do you realize how much that would be filtered out if, you know, you talk to your spouse or your kids or neighbors, coworkers, 
with that mouth filter. So anyway, this is the whole concept. We're presenting every part of our bodies to God, positively, energetically to God for his service. I like the two ways of translating hopla, which is tool or weapon, right? There's, there's warfare to be fought. So we can use our prayers as a weapon. God, tear down those strongholds, Lord. We've got friends that are serving overseas as missionaries. God, the people they're ministering to are enslaved to false religions with invisible chains around them. Set those people free, Lord. Set them free. Think about our own country. Our country is just, the culture's weird. Like I, I wrote, a sermon I wrote yesterday was on uh, divorce um, from Mark 10, 1 through 12. I'm usually about five weeks ahead. And... Jesus said, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? Stop right there. Oh, Jesus was binary. (laughs) Jesus was healthy. Jesus knew that there's male and female. Do you not see the corruption that's come in our minds? And in God willing, in five weeks, I'm going to get to address it from the pulpit. I'm not transphobic. I'm trying to tell the truth. But there are all kinds of false concepts that are going around, and we can use the Word of God to destroy those false concepts. But then also we have an obligation to one another. People get weary, they get tired, they get discouraged, they go through trials. You know people in medical trials. You could give them a call or visit them and use your tongue to encourage them, build them up, point them to Scripture, something. Anyway, tool or, or weapon, either way, just every part of your body. Think of the complexity of the organs of your body. The complexity of the tongue, the complexity of the eyes or of the feet or the capacity to walk. God made all that. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. He made it to be used. And so, God, I want you to use me. That's what, that's what this passage, 11 through 14, is saying. And then he finishes up with this statement, you're not under law but under grace. And then he picks up the question, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? That's the same question. It's just a different version of the same question. And why is that? Because we have a relentless tendency to trade every good thing we get from God in for sin. Justification by faith alone, all our our sins, past, present, and future, forgiven. Oh, that's good news. Ah, that means I can sin with impunity. That's what you're going to do with that? But that's the reason for the whole chapter, right? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And now we find out we're not under law, but under grace. Well, shall we sin because of that? Because we're not under law but under grace? No. All right, now here's the question. What does that mean? What does it mean that we're not under law but under grace? Sure, real quick. I think my, my Christian walk was really turned completely upside down when I studied the Beatitudes. And the very first thing that Jesus said in Matthew 5 was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's translated literally, are the beggars. Mm-hmm. So that's where it starts. When I recognize every day, I don't have it. I'm a beggar before yeah. you. I need you to fill me with your Holy Spirit and empower me and help me to do this. And then in, in Hebrews, it says that we have a high priest. We do not have, well, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, um, we don't have a high priest that isn't able to, emphasize, to sympathize with us because he's been through all of it. He's mm-hmm. been tested as well. He's gone through trials, but he was without sin. And that we can find grace in our time of need. And understanding that concept of being able to find grace, I'm saved by grace, but I can also find grace in my time of need. And for me, that means being able to cry out and say, I can't, I'm a beggar right now. It's a good word. I need you. I need you to do this in me. I cannot do this. And he's there every time. It's beautiful. I think a corroborating verse with that is Paul saying, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You know, if you know you're a beggar, you know you're weak, you know that you're sick with sin, you go to Jesus the physician. Jesus says, not the healthy you need a doctor, it's the sick. Are you sick? I'll heal you. If you think you're fine, there's nothing I can do for you. So that's a good word. It's a very, very good word. All right, this is an important phrase now, though. We need to understand it properly. We're not under law, but under grace. Let's read this section. Somebody read uh, for us 15 through 19. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. 
you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you need to offer the parts of your body to slavery, to impurity, and their ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. Yeah, it's just a marvel to me how thick these Pauline epistles are, how thick especially Romans is with truth. Every half verse, every third of a verse is rich with teaching. So there's just a lot to walk through here. But he brings up the topic, shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Let's try to understand what that means. What does it mean to be under law? And who would that be? Who is under law? And what does it mean to be under grace? All right, now I think it's important for us to consider that these are two states of being, or you could imagine uh, two rival kingdoms, all right? A kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light, all right? The Bible does present that as a reality, all right? There is the kingdom of Satan, kingdom of darkness, kingdom of sin and death, also in some sense a kingdom under law. That's the sense. And then there's the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, uh, the kingdom of, of righteousness, etc. We should not imagine just by, because we articulate this that they are equally strong. That's dualism, like the yin and yang or something like that, that good and evil are battling it out on, on roughly equal terms. That is just simply not true. God is infinitely powerful above every force. Um, however, there are these two kingdoms. So I believe to be under law means to be dead in your transgressions and sins, to be enslaved to sin, to be in Satan's kingdom, all right? And then at the moment of conversion, you have been rescued from it, all right? So look at Colossians 1.13. It's a beautiful statement. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So that, that one verse, Colossians 1.13, proves what I'm saying. There are these two kingdoms. There is the dominion of darkness, Satan's kingdom, and then we've got the dominion of the beloved Son of Jesus. And so you are uh, plunder, basically. You're plunder uh, that Jesus has rescued from Satan's dark kingdom. Remember the, uh, the concept of when Jesus is explaining his exorcisms, and uh, they uh, ascribed it to Beelzebub, it's by Beelzebub that he drives out demons. Jesus said, every strong man fully armed keeps his goods at peace, would be King James' translation. He, he's got all the stuff in his house secure. But then when someone stronger than him overpowers him, he strips him of the armor in which he trusted and he plunders his house. Jesus is portraying Satan as the original strong man who has all of his possessions in order, and then someone else comes along stronger than him, that's Jesus, and he destroys and defeats him and plunders. We are plundered. We've been rescued. This is just a straight assertion of it. You have been rescued from the dominion of darkness. You can also see how ridiculous any kind of self-salvation is. There's no way you could have delivered yourself from those chains. No way. So to be under law is to be unconverted, it is to be dead in your transgressions and sins. And then the law is over you in a number of senses in which it is no longer over you once you're a Christian. Okay? So in what sense is the law no longer over you once you've been rescued? I would draw, draw the distinction. It's a matter of control where mm -hmm. uh, if you're under the law, you are going to sin. Okay. And you have... Uh, and if you're under grace, mm -hmm. you've got the option. That you have the ability. Mm -hmm. uh, you, uh, not, you don't have to sin. Okay. And it's, it's kind of the... Uh, uh, so you're a slave to sin in the old system if you're under law. But law doesn't make you sin. Law, as we find out in chapter 7, becomes a ground and a stimulus to sin. But there's nothing wrong with the law. Go ahead. You're not under the frustration of the law. Right? Okay. Frustrated, right? 
But sure. You're not under that once you're, once you're under the Amen. I think all that's true. Maybe kind of to the, to the kind of core of it, the heart of the matter is, you're not under the law and its power to condemn you to hell. Does the law have that power to condemn you to hell? Actually, it does. The end of this chapter will basically say it. The wages of sin is what? Death. And how does the law minister death? By condemning you to death. I mean, think about specific sin patterns in the, in the uh, theocracy, the Old Testament, that were punishable by death. Right? Like in the sermon on divorce that I was writing yesterday, it's just the, what is the penalty for adultery in the Old Covenant? Stoning to death. It was death. What's the penalty, penalty for idolatry going after other? It's, you know, how many death penalties were there? I mean, that was punishable. It was like everything was punishable by death. Not everything, but many things were. And so the law had the power to kill you. And so to be under the law in that sense means that the law stands against you. It's got a record of your, of your sins, and it's ready to consign you to hell. It's ready to condemn you. That's the beauty of Romans 8.1, which says there is therefore now no condemnation. So we'll start there. To not be under law means you're not under the law's condemning power. Does that make sense? Also, we would say you're not under the law's restraining power either because it's not made for that for you. You're under a different kind of restraining power now. You're under grace. Does that make sense? Now, the word under implies something. To be under law versus under grace. What does it imply about us? Governed. Say again? Governed. Governed. Okay. We're slaves. We are slaves. Yeah. That's, how do you feel about it? I mean, that's a pretty serious assertion there, Greg. We're slaves. Yeah. All right? Still? Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's where this whole chapter is going. Yeah. You are a slave. The question is, who's your master? And you show who your master is by how you live, by who you obey. But you can't say, I hereby decide I will not be a slave at all. I'm not going to serve sin or God. I'm not going to serve anything. I am my own person. I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. What would such a person be saying about themselves based on this chapter? Are they indeed not a slave? Or are they the slave of a master they didn't know about? Could it be that's the essence of, sin, of Satan's deception? Is that his slaves don't know that they are his slaves. They don't know that they are in his chains. Jesus has to say, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So that's what we're talking about. To be under law is to be under its condemning power, but also under its restraining power so that you need to be commanded in certain areas to behave certain ways and not to do certain things. Like, for example, if you look at uh, 1 Timothy 1, it's on, in your handout there. Someone uh, read that, 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. <coughs> we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels and the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers or for per and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. So that's what Paul's saying. The law was made for those kind of people. To do what? Restrain them. To hold them back from running amok. That's Paul's point there. We don't need that. You see what I'm saying? We don't need that. Now you're like, well, wait a minute. We do still sin. Well, we'll get to that. But the only reason you still sin is because you are stupid and insane and habitual sinners and all that, like me. We're all like that. Sin is insane. But the law was made for wicked you know, people to restrain them and hold them in so they don't run amok. By the way, I skipped Colossians 2, 13 and 14, which is the law and its condemning power. Someone read that, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. So that written code 
that was against you, that's the law. And there was a record um, of, of your transgressions and it was against you. And it would testify against you on judgment day. The law would. God took that away and nailed it to the cross. That's what that means. So that you're not under the law and its condemning power and you're not under the law and the restraining power. Let me tell you exactly what I mean by the second. Let's just go to the final degree, our glorification. All right. Remember that Jesus summarized the law, all of the laws, all of them in two commandments. Remember, the first and greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbors yourself. Would you say Christians are free from any consideration in those two areas? We don't ever think about loving God and we don't have to worry about loving our neighbor. Would we say that that is true? Clearly it isn't. Please tell me you know that that's not true. What else are we supposed to do with our lives every day but that, right? That is the law. So to be, to be not under law doesn't mean we're not having any conception of loving God and loving neighbor. In heaven, those two things will be perfected in us. Do you see what I'm saying? We just will. And we will not need to be commanded in those areas. See what I'm saying? You don't have to be commanded. Just like there are some sin patterns that are absolutely, I would say, not part of your lives, all right, even though they are listed. As far as I know, in the 25 years I've been here, I've never dealt with anyone that came to me and confessed the sin of brawling, all right? It's listed in Galatians 5. Any of you uh, want to say, look, actually, Pastor, I'm working on it, but, you know, it's, uh, it's getting better, all right? I mean, what is that sin? What is brawling? When you think of brawling, A fist fight, right? Going in, just, just diving in, right? And swinging. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I actually have a story to tell about this. <laughs> I went to a minor league hockey game in Louisville. What was that? What's the hockey team there in Louisville? There's a minor league hockey Yeah, well, you didn't know. All right. Native Louisvilleite. Uh, uh, now the baseball teams are river bats. I don't know the name of them, but they're, they're there. There was, a, there was a professional hockey team, and I went. And <laughs> while I was there, um, a local citizen um, started fighting with another, and they were—I mean, it was—they were—they were brawling. There's no doubt about it. And there was, uh, you know, blood all over this guy's face. And suddenly, this woman appears with a big purse, and uh, I forget the guy's name. I don't remember you know, John, she said, oh no, John, not again, and pulled a towel out of her purse and started mopping his face. It was just a different culture, you know? It was like, it's not my culture. I don't know if it's a Southern Indiana culture or if it's a Northern Kentucky culture, probably Southern India. All right, there we go, all right. So. All right, I, I would say I struggle with a lot of sins. I don't struggle with that one, all right? Another analogy I've used before is of, of uh, hijacking a plane. I mean, we all have to go through the TSA procedures, all right? I'm just telling you, it's not, a, it's not a temptation I struggle with, all right? It's like, I'm struggling not to plot to, to, to you know, put this thing together and hijack the plane. I've been struggling with it, but I, I'm doing better now. It's like just not something I struggle with, right? Well, imagine not struggling with any sin. None. There's nothing in you that is attracted to evil at all. You're not under law. You're just fulfilling it. Does that make sense? Now, we should be living like that now. We should, and we can. But that's what I think part of what it means, not under law. Does that make sense? We're not under law, but we're under grace. So, um, you know, that's, good yeah. Analogy I've seen. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you had a field with mud puddles in it you could keep a pig clean mm -hmm. if it had chains on it, but its nature wants to jump in. Okay. That's under law. It's restrained. It Got it. Got it. But if you had a cat and you had food on the other side, like you wouldn't have to restrain the cat at all. Its nature is to not want sure. to get dirty. Yeah, I mean, and, and let's just, you look at the Sermon on the Mount, which you mentioned, you know, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say that if you're even angry, you're in danger of the fire of hell. What Jesus is saying is that the unregenerate heart is a murderous heart. 
it is restrained generally because of fear of punishment. You should never let anyone tell you that fear of punishment is not a deterrent because the Bible says it is. Three times in Deuteronomy it says, then all Israel will hear and be afraid. It's always tied to capital punishment. When the person is stoned to death, all Israel will hear and be afraid and not do that evil thing. That's open proof, biblical proof, that capital punishment is in fact a deterrent. People are restrained from evil. But if we're not pigs anymore, we don't want to wallow in the muck. Very good analogy. All right, say again. Absolutely. So we've got this. There's this kingship. Um, we've been set free. And I think we walked through all this. Uh, the handout shows that uh, the liberation If Jesus, uh, you know, sin is a tyrant. Sin is dominating. Sin enslaved us and Jesus set us free. We are not slaves to sin. Sin was a terrible master. Romans 5.21, just as sin reigned in death. That makes sin a, a, a tyrant, a king. Uh, so also grace might reign. So in the same way that sin used to reign in death, so now grace reigns. So that's what it means that we're, we're under grace. So grace is an energetic force in our lives. And that energetic force is dominating us. But not in the way that like a demon uh, possesses somebody and basically rapes their personhood. All right? they're, they're, not, they're not in their right mind anymore. The Holy Spirit indwelling in us heals us, right? reasons with us, teaches us, but it's very powerful, it's very effective. And so grace reigns um, to bring, bring about righteousness. Grace is a power, it's not passive. It's energetic and creative. Uh, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign in righteousness. Um, and then Isaiah 9 is a beautiful picture of this liberation as well. Um, many people know the, you know the Christmas verse, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, etc. For to us a child is born. But a couple of verses before that, it says, As in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. That's a picture of the enslavement of a lost person. They're enslaved to sin. Jesus comes along and shatters that yoke. But he does say, take my yoke upon you. So that's the very thing. We are under a yoke. It's either going to be the yoke of slavery to sin, or it's going to be Jesus's yoke of kingly authority, kingly authority. He has the right to command us. All right. So we have been uh, set free. That's what he's saying. Uh, verse 18 and verse 22, he says it twice. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And he says it again. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. All right. So what is the significance of that? That we have been set free, decisively set free from sin. Nothing so bad it can do that bring me back to my position. Okay. So analogy that Martin Lloyd-Jones used was uh, from um, a picture of, of, of slavery, chattel slavery. And you can imagine back when slavery was um, legal and there would be an owner and he uh, would be um, yelling at the slaves to work in certain ways and would beat them if they didn't obey and all that. You could imagine once uh, slavery was made illegal, um, the uh, master being uh, imprisoned uh, in like a uh, um, some kind of a prison with uh, bars in the windows like uh, like the westerns you know you can imagine so you could still hear his voice right and imagine if you were a lifetime slave and you heard the voice of the old master yelling out with the same kinds of commands there would be this grip of fear and this habitual kind of obedience that has no legitimacy at all. You're able to say, no, I will not do what you want. But we are habitually patterned to hear the temptation and go do it. Even though we have been, verse 18 and 22, set free from sin. So any temptation that emanates is similar to that master, that incarcerated master, yelling out commands that we then foolishly obey. All right, we've been set free from that and we have, we have been now made um, slaves of righteousness. Now, verse 19 is where we'll begin next week. It is the progressive sanctification verse there is in the Bible. 
Second, uh, uh, Second Peter 3.18 also, grow in grace, that's more positive. But uh, we'll talk about progressive uh, sanctification based on verse 19 next time. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the time we've had to study tonight, for the progress we've made here in Romans 6. Lord, help us to not be hearers only, but doers of the word. We've talked about practical things we can do in our quiet times to get ready for a day of holiness. We've talked about besetting sins, areas that are weak uh, in us. Um, uh, could be uh, complaining, uh, could be gossip, it could be carnal anger, it could be bad driving habits, uh, could be sexual uh, sins, lust, uh, could be a variety of things. Help us to fight sin comprehensively, not selectively, but comprehensively. Everything that we know that is dishonoring to you, to put it to death and to walk in newness of life. Uh, we thank you for the, the liberating truths of Romans 6 and how powerful uh, they are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.